And uh, we're going to try and get through the rest of this chapter. We'll see how it goes. So good. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, just thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the revelation of Jesus. And we want to know Jesus better this morning. want to comprehend who he is, Lord, just as we've seen already so early in this gospel. This gospel is about discovering who Jesus is, that he's the son of God, that we believe in him, that we discover life in his name. And so, Lord, um, we can't create life. You're the giver of life. You're the creator of life. We pray that you'd bring life by your spirit into our lives this morning, Lord, as we put our faith in you, Jesus, that, you just, that we would truly experience the life of Christ just right through your word, Lord. And so open our hearts, God. May your spirit speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1. And I think we'll just start reading a little bit of this story here. And so let's pick it up. We're at verse 19. Verse 1 to 18 we looked at last week. It's just John's prologue and kind of introduction to his gospel as he paints this picture of Jesus. And now we begin to get into the story of what happened, what John, the things that John wants us to know. And so let's read it from verse 19. It says this. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. They said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, and why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where he was baptizing. So John the Apostle tells us about John the Baptist here. And as we get introduced to his story, well, I guess kind of John here is in about, he's in about his late 20s. He's, he's a, or early 30s really. He's uh, Jesus' cousin, somehow distant, a little bit distant, removed. He's about six months older. And he's a man who lived uh, a lonely life in, in the wilderness apart from others. But the thing about John is John had wonderful spiritual communion with God. The scripture tells us something about John that it tells about nobody else in scripture. And it says this about him. That he was filled with the spirit from when he was in the womb. Now, for those who were with us on Wednesday night, you know that this, we, we talked about this, that that was not the case in the Old Testament. It's not the case for us today. We, we receive the Spirit when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. He comes and He indwells us. In the Old Testament, the pattern was this, is that the Spirit came upon individuals for certain tasks, for certain seasons, for, for certain things God was calling them to do, but the Spirit did not indwell them. But the Scripture tells us that John was filled with the Spirit even in his mother's womb. Amazing. And so he, had, he grew up with a communion, a relationship with the Lord. It's interesting. It's like you look at John and it's like he didn't need things. You know? He didn't, he didn't have a wife he didn't, that we know of. We, doesn't, we don't see John with tons of money. He's not a high roller. He's not a, like a, 
a fashion dude. He's living in the wilderness. He's interested in his communion with God. He's a man who is full of the Spirit. And so as he steps into public life and his ministry begins, uh, he doesn't even go into town. He doesn't even go into the cities and, and start his ministry, but he stays out in the wilderness and he begins to do two things that kind of make him stand out in the midst of his culture. He begins to, to preach sermons and he begins to baptize people in the Jordan River. He was down in Bethany and Bethany is, was just on the other side of the Jordan towards Moab, today modern Jordan, and just above, just north of the Sea of Galilee, uh, the, sorry, the Dead Sea. It's not up by the Sea of Galilee, but he's down by the Dead Sea. And it was that, that journey, to get to see him, you'd have to take that road. If you're coming from Jerusalem, you'd take that famous road, 20 miles down to Jericho. You'd cross the Jordan River, and John would be there on the other side, and he was preaching the word. And people were drawn to him. The, the multitudes came and as he called them to repentance, as we see all throughout the Gospels, they responded. They began to do this strange thing. They began to go into the waters and be baptized for the repentance of their sins. And the people were just coming to John in hordes. And so the priests, or the, actually the sect of the Pharisees, the religious leaders at that time, gathered together some of their cohort, these Levites and these priests, and they sent them down to make this journey to to find out what was going on, to do a bit of an investigation, what was drawing people to John. And this delegation came to him, and they had two questions. They wanted to know, who are you? And why are you baptizing people? Like, what's going on here? Now, it's interesting, like, when you, you look at it, they begin to ask him questions. You know, they had some verses and some thoughts. They had some things that they were looking for as they were looking for the coming of the Messiah. You know, during this time, um, the nation of Israel had undergone 400 years of silence with God. They hadn't had a prophet since the prophet Malachi. Like you go to the end of your Old Testament and you've got the prophet Malachi. He's the last one who spoke and then there was 400 years of silence for them as a nation. They, they, they had their history recorded in the midst of that, but in the midst of all of that history... For 400 years, the Lord had not spoken a word to them. He had not sent a single prophet into their midst. And God was not speaking. And for the nation of Israel, there was nothing to listen to. It was like they were longing to hear the voice of the Lord. And they had been given these scriptures and they had, were holding on to these. But this is a generation who had never heard a prophet speak, ever. They'd never heard prophecy. And, and they wondered when God was going to speak and they were looking for someone. They were holding on to certain scriptures and they were looking for a particular person to come and speak to them in the midst of the silence. And so this is where these questions come from. See, the last words that Malachi said in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 is this. He prophesied these words of the Lord. Behold... I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So God had promised that Elijah would come again. And, and they thought Elijah was the greatest prophet. Like if you go back in the history of the Old Testament, it's like Elijah stands out amongst the prophets. He raised the dead. He did all sorts of amazing things. Elijah and the prophets of Baal, he called down fire from heaven. And they were looking for Elijah to return. So that, that was part of their question. 
They also had a verse that, that we know in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where Moses prophesied this. He said this, The Lord will raise up a prophet for you, like me from among your brothers. It is you, it is him you shall listen to. So they thought, okay, we're looking for Elijah. We're kind of looking for someone like Moses. And so they'd, they'd talk about it and they'd look for the prophet in the midst of all of this quietness, this silence from heaven. It was like, where is the voice of God? And they were looking for these characteristics in someone. They were looking for a king like David. A king anointed by God as David was anointed. You know the Hebrew word for Messiah, the Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. The Greek word for anointed is Christ. So they were looking for an anointed one. They were looking for one to come in the pattern of David as they knew that there was someone coming to, to be this king, this Christ. And so they were looking for this Messiah. And from the time of David until this time that John has shown up, a thousand years has gone by. For a thousand years, this nation has had this hope. And for 400 years, there's been total silence. Nothing from heaven. So they're looking for someone like Moses, like Elijah, like David, someone who fits into this pattern. And so who shows up? A locust eating, wilderness living, camel skin wearing John, the Baptist, out in the middle of the desert, in the wilderness, preaching. And when people heard John speak, they heard the words of God. They recognized it. They could hear it. You know that in your own life. You know when you're hearing the words of God, you're like, there's something here. The Spirit is speaking. The Spirit is speaking. And when John preached, they said, the Spirit of God, God is speaking again. The silence has ended. We're hearing God. And it was the first time in years that a nation had heard God. And so it's no wonder that they began to come in droves to John and his message was really simple. His message was this, you're dirty. You need to be washed. You're dirty and I'll wash you. And as he spoke, the crowds recognized that there was dirt inside of them. There was filth inside of them. And to go into that Jordan River with everyone watching and to be washed was an open acknowledgement. There is inward filth inside of my heart. I repent of sin. I turn from it. And that's what John, John preached. He, he, he said this. He's like, get washed. Get clean. The king is coming. He's coming. So this delegation comes from Jerusalem and they say, who are you? Who are you? Who are you to speak these words and to call this nation? And, and it was like this confrontation between the religious people sect of the Pharisees and a fresh move of God's spirit. It's always interesting how, you know, religion clashes with the move of God's spirit. They said, who are you? What do you think of yourself? And so at the end of verse 19, there's that question, who are you? Verse 20 says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. It's interesting as they ask these questions, are you Elijah? Was he Elijah? No, he was John. They should have asked them, have you come in the spirit and power of Elijah? Then he would have said, yes, I've come in the spirit and power of Elijah to announce the coming of the Lord. Now John says this, I don't want to talk about myself. You Elijah? No. You the Christ? I am not. How clear is that? I am not. He says, let's not talk about me. And, and this is, you know, it's interesting to just hear that answer of John, I am not. It's like contrast those words of John the Baptist and the words of Jesus. Are you the Christ? I am not. Jesus, are you the Christ? I am. Whoa. Can't be any clearer, that contrast. There's a difference between this man, John, and the son of God, Jesus. So they said to him, verse 22, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. You've driven the Sea to Sky Highway lately? It's a beautiful drive. I love the drive on the Sea to Sky Highway. It's gorgeous. And it's, it's much nicer to drive since we made all those upgrades in 2010, right? Spent all that, all that money. And it's interesting to just stop and think about what John is saying and, and the reality is that we do this all the time, all over the world. Why did we upgrade that highway? Because the world was coming to travel on it. Important people were coming. People were coming from all over the world to descend on Vancouver and they were gonna make the journey to Whistler. So we needed to clean up the road, straighten it out, widen it, you know, make it safer blast away rock, do the things that needed to be done so that the road could be safely traveled. And John said, this is simply my message. My message is this, the Lord is coming, get ready. You know, if you think about ancient roads, ancient roads could be a mess full of potholes. Um, you know, rocks, all sorts of bumps. And, and John's message was this, he was, he was saying, make straight the road. And that was the culture, what happened? I mean, imagine if the Roman emperor was coming to Jerusalem. What do you think the Romans would have been doing? They would have conscripted all of these Israelites, Jews, to straighten roads and to say, the emperor is coming down this path. We need to, like, get this road in shape to prepare him. Fill the potholes, clear the bumps, smooth it out, remove the rocks. A very important person is coming. John said, that's all I am. I'm that person. I'm the person that's announcing someone very important is coming and the road needs to be straightened. Our hearts need to be straightened. It's a great, it's a great message. You know, Jesus said of John, he said, there's no one greater born. Before John, there's been no one greater because his message was simply this, get ready for the coming of the Lord. And that's our message, church. We have that same mandate. We're to have that spirit of Elijah. We're to announce that message. Get ready. A VIP's coming. The king is coming. He's coming to earth the second time. He's come once and he's gonna come again and we need to be ready for that. And so as John gave this answer to these people who were coming to do the investigation and figure out who they were, that, that didn't satisfy him. They asked him, 
then why are you baptizing? If you're just a messenger who's announcing the coming of this king, why are you baptizing people? You're not, you're not the Christ, and you say you're not Elijah, and you say you're not the prophet. Why are you baptizing? This is like this religious symbol and practice you shouldn't be doing, John. You're, you're not a priest as far as we know. You're not this. You're not that. Now, it's interesting, in, in Jewish culture, baptism, you know, there was all sorts of ceremonial washings. We know that all about, you know, you read it all throughout the Old Testament. The Jews would go, if they were going to worship, they would undergo ceremonial washings. They'd go to the temple, they'd bring a sacrifice. There were all sorts of public areas for them to have ceremonial washings. But that was about washing the outside so that they would be clean for worship. And John in baptizing was doing something that Jews only practiced with Gentiles. See, they practiced that with Gentiles because they say, you're not the people of God, you're dirty. You're dirty on the inside. We're Jews, we're just dirty on the outside, so we'll get washed and we can worship. But because you're dirty on the inside, you need to be baptized. And John was saying this, he was saying, we, Jewish people, are as dirty as the Gentiles on the inside. And if the Lord's coming, then we need to be, to be clean. We've got to get ready. We've got to wash. We've got to repent and turn from our sin. And so what a message, you know, what a, what a ministry. And of course, John was like, he was offending people in the midst of it. You brood of vipers. Calling, calling them to task. And so verse 26, John answered them when they questioned on him, them on this. He said, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Jewish rabbis had a, a saying and a practice in their culture amongst themselves and with their disciples, those who would serve them and whom they were training, this master pupil relationship. And, and the saying was this that everything a servant does. Everything a servant does for his master, a pupil should do for their teacher except one thing, untie his sandal. A pupil does not have to untie the sandal of his teacher because that's a servant's job. That's the lowest of the low. That's the most undignified, humiliating task in a culture like that to take those dirty, dusty feet and un untie the sandal off that that, that foot, that's the, that's the job of the lowest slave. And John said this, I'm not even good enough to do that job for the one who stands amongst you. So John was saying this. He said, stop looking at me. <laughs> you know, stop discussing me. There's someone far greater than me, John is saying. And it's one who's standing among you. And you know, that's our message, church. That's our message. Our message is this. Look to Jesus. We want to point people to Jesus. That's our goal. We want you. That's a goal. Our goal as a church. This is my goal as a pastor. We want to tell you, look to Jesus. Set your eyes on Jesus. Well, it's amazing. John, the apostle, tells us what happened the very next day because the next day Jesus came and John saw him coming and he said, look, there he is. He pointed him out. Look at verse 29. 
The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now this is amazing if you stop and just kind of think about this story and what's going on. John somehow is, well, we know how. We're going to read how in a minute. He's already identified who Jesus is. He is personally identified and knows who Jesus is because the Lord's given him a sign. But what happened when Jesus was baptized? He was baptized in water. The Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. Voice spoke from heaven. And immediately, what did the Spirit do? Drove Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. And so I think here as we read this, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. Jesus is coming back from 40 days of temptation. Coming straight from his temptation. And as he comes, John makes this declaration, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God, what a title for Jesus. There's a lot there. Just from what we know about our Bibles, there's a lot there. I mean, we, we see the first time a lamb is offered is by one of Adam's sons, Abel. Offers a lamb personally. In the Bible, we, we see the development of Passover. And we see a nation coming all throughout the Old Testament once a year and offering a, a, a lamb for the sacrifice of, of their sins. And the scripture, you see it is for individuals, for households, for nations. And we might think of a lamb, we might think of like this little newborn tiny lamb that you might hold in your arms like you'd hold a kitten or something like that. But a lamb in the Bible or a lamb to the shepherd or to their thinking was this, a lamb was a yearling. A lamb had some maturity, it, it, it had grown, it was strong. In fact, it's, you could call that lamb a ram. That's why Genesis 22 tells us, you know, maybe you're confused about that sometimes when you read in Genesis 22, well, the ram was provided for the sacrifice. It was a yearling. It was a yearling lamb. And that's what Genesis 22 tells us, that, that Abraham saw caught in the thicket a ram, and Abraham had actually told his son Isaac, he said, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And then the Lord stopped him before he sacrificed the son. And there was that ram caught in the thicket. And so there's this amazing picture all throughout scripture of the lamb upon which sins are, are placed. The lamb which gives its life in substitution for the, for the sins of the individual or the family or the nation. And the Jews practice Passover every year at their temple Every day, every day, morning and evening, hundreds of lambs were slain for sin. Hundreds. Once a year, every household personally took that lamb and, and, and shed the blood, cut its throat. The night of Passover and the blood flowed. The family did it. And so when John called Jesus the Lamb of God, man, everybody understood. They got the picture. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so if he's the Lamb of God, it means this. What does the Lamb have to do to remove sin? It has to give its life. Its life has to be taken. Blood has to be spilt. 
And to call Jesus the Lamb of God, I mean, it, it just automatically means to the mind of that culture, he's going to have to die soon. If he's going to take away the sin of the world, he's going to have to die. It's interesting, John, John died not long after this. John the Baptist died not long after this. You know the story. It's a famous story. It's, it's bloody and it's gory. And Herod's wife requested through her the sensual dancing of, of her daughter, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And John, John died a bloody death, man. It's like he was beheaded. But John's blood being spilt didn't accomplish anything for the sins of the world. But Jesus, the Lamb of God, three years later, he's nailed to a cross. His blood flows. And what does his blood accomplish? His blood, the shed blood of Jesus, accomplished the mission of God to save the world from its sin. And there's no greater claim. I mean, when you, when you think about this claim, this title that is given to Jesus, I, I mean, what more could you say about Jesus with this picture, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? I mean, if you're, if you're at all new to Christianity or like maybe you're new here this morning and you, and you think to yourself, why do Christians make such a big deal about the death of Jesus and the cross? Like what the heck? What is with this fascination? Why do, they, why do Christians think the greatest thing Jesus ever did was to die and to die a violent death on a cross with his blood being shed? Why is that? Because we believe this, that Jesus was taking away the sins of the world when he did that. He was giving his life as the Lamb of God. You can't take away sin from your life. Have you figured that out yet? <laughs> I can't take away your sin. You can't take away my sin. I can't even deal with my own sin. You and I can't do that for one single other person, but Jesus did this. He took away the sins of the world. The whole world removed. All human selfishness, all uh, human rebellion and willfulness, he, he takes it away and he doesn't just cover it up. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. It's not just reduced or somehow neutralized. The scripture says he takes it away. It's gone. so awesome when we come to him what he does with our sin and I can't I can't even deal with the smallest thing in my life you know and he takes it all away and the promise of scripture is this is that one day there's going to be a, a new heaven and a new earth in which there will be righteousness and there will be peace and there will be no sin there won't be any sin because Jesus has dealt with it and it will be because of him and the Lamb of God, John, John says, look, the Lamb of God who is taking away the sin of the world. Look at him. Verse 30, it says this, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You know the amazing thing about Jesus when we talk about him as a Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Jesus didn't just come to empty your life, to remove things from your life. He didn't just come to take away all things that are wrong. Jesus came to fill you with everything that's right. To take something away, but then to replace it. And he replaces it with this, his spirit, the Holy Spirit. To fill you with all that's right, the spirit of God. So I look at John and you think about John and it's like, he's content. There's something about him that's like so bizarre. You weirdo walking around in camel skin and eating locusts and it's like, there is something, there is life inside of John that he is experiencing through the spirit of God that separates him from this world. There's something right inside of him that says, I don't need what this world has to offer. You know, it's funny because there can be this attitude that like life without sin is kind of like boring. It's kind of like dull. You know, once in a while you just need this, the excitement of sin. Sin's so exciting. It's so fulfilling, you know, that it like, it's true, you know. And just you think about this. John knew that if this lamb was going to take away the sins of the world, he was not going to leave the world empty. When he took something away, he's going to replace it with something better. And so John spoke of what that something else was. He said, I baptize you with water, but the lamb of God is going to give you another baptism, and he's going to fill you up with something else, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. He, did, he doesn't just come to take away your sin. He came to fill you with his spirit. Jesus didn't come to just take away from your life everything that's wrong. He came to replace everything with, that's wrong with everything that's right. And I think, you know, if people say, oh, Christianity's boring, and I say, you're boring. <laughs> you're boring. You don't know what life is if you think Christianity is boring. You don't know what life is if you think Jesus is boring. You don't know what life is if you think being filled with the Spirit is boring. Are you kidding me? Sin or being filled with the Spirit? Wow. No question. No competition. So you have to be filled with something. You have to be filled with something. That's why Paul actually said this. He said, don't get drunk on wine. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's right, Melissa. Be filled with the Spirit. Look, in our lives, we're always looking to fill the void. We're finding ways to be filled. People are turning to substance and possession and things all the time. And, and Paul just said it. Don't get, what are you doing? You know, it's like, it, to me, it's not so much a command as it's like a mockery. It's like, 
You're like choosing something so cheap compared to what you could have. We live in a culture that's filling itself constantly. You, you guys know how alcohol flows. How, you know, the, the craze in our culture is weed. It's like, I got to be filled with something. Paul says, be controlled by the Spirit. Not alcohol, not substance, not this, not that. You want to be satisfied, be filled with the Spirit. And so the Lord is so good because he knows that, you know, taking away something that is wrong is, if you take away something that's wrong, you just find something else to fill it with. So the Lord just says, I'll take it away and I'll fill you with what's right. My spirit. And it's amazing, like I said, John was filled with the spirit from the day of his birth. No other person in scripture does it say that. And he, he didn't have anything, but he had everything. He got nothing, but he got everything. He was filled with the Spirit. And John said, you know, God told me something. As, he, as these investigators came, he said, God, God told me something. He told me, the Spirit of God told me that while I was baptizing people, a, one individual would come, and when I baptized that individual, I would see the Spirit of God descend upon him, in the form of a dove, and that dove, the spirit would stay with him, and that man whom I would baptize, I would be able to recognize him as the Messiah because of that, that very action that the Lord would do. Pretty cool. It's like John wasn't wondering. He could say to them, among you stands one whom you do not know, but I know him. Because the Spirit of God's revealed him to me. The dove landed on him. It's a beautiful picture. You can go all the way back to Noah's Ark and just remember the story of Noah. What did Noah do? He sent that dove out. That dove returned because there was no place to land. Sent it out again. That dove came back with an olive branch. He sent it out again and the dove just never bothered to return. Look, that dove had no place to land. There's a beautiful fulfillment of this picture right here for us in scripture. This dove landed and it rested. It's a picture of the spirit. It rested on the person, the man, Jesus. Did not depart. And John said, I saw it happen. I, I saw it. He was there. Jesus was right there. I, I, I didn't know him. He was just a face for me in the crowd. Just, just a face in the midst of the crowd. Just another Jewish male. Nothing so awesome about him that I could recognize him. But when I baptized him, I saw the spirit descend upon him in the form of the dove. And it rested on him. And in verse 34, it says this, John said, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. Why is he unique? He's, he's, he's unique for lots of reasons, but here's two John gives us. Well, no one else can take away your sin. No one else can take away your sin, but Jesus can take away your sin. No one else can baptize you in the Holy Spirit, but Jesus can baptize you in the Holy Spirit. It's awesome. Okay, I'm gonna keep going. <laughs> 
This is a cool part of the text. As the story goes on here, we begin to see really the start of the church, those first disciples who began to follow Jesus. And as we're going to see, it began, it began like this. One person found Jesus, and then one person went and found someone else. Verse 35, let's check it out. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, or Kepha, which means Peter. Pretty cool. Get these two disciples that are following John. He doesn't mention his name. We totally think that this is John the Apostle and Andrew. They're there. And they begin to follow Jesus. One glimpse of Jesus was enough. They switched their allegiance. They switched their allegiance immediately from John the Baptist to Jesus. From one leader to another. And the question Jesus asked them was this. What, what are you seeking? Why do you come to me? You know, it's an interesting question. Like I maybe, it would be fun to just go around the room if we had time. You know? Say, why did you come to Jesus? What were you seeking? Why did you come to Jesus? I mean, I'm pro probably most of us did not come to Jesus to, to have our sins taken away. We like just figured out that that was like, that was the bonus. That was like one of the good, great things about Jesus. Soon we realized that's what he came to do, but we, we might have come to him for all sorts of different reasons. These guys said this, what are you seeking? They answered, We'd like to know where you live. <laughs> uh, could you give us your address? They were curious. You know, they wanted to know, how can we get in contact with you? Jesus didn't have a business card or an email or cell phone number to give him because that was still the days of rotary phones. <laughs> and so he said, all right, come and see. Come and see. Come with me. You want to know where I live, where you can find me? Why don't you just do this? Come with me. And I like that. He says, come on, let's go. I, I'm going to do one better than give you my address. You can just come with me right now. Let's travel together. And he understood that they wanted to know, know the person rather than the place. So he said, come, come to my house. My home is open to you. We can, we can hang out. And, and it's interesting because if you see what they called Jesus, they called him rabbi. John called him Lamb, Lamb of God, Son of God. They called him Rabbi, Teacher. Because they weren't at the point where they could say Son of God or they could say Lamb of God. Like for them, Rabbi was as far as their faith could maybe rise. And, and you know, it's interesting. Lots of people start there with Jesus. It's like, well, why did you come to Jesus? Well, I was interested in his teaching. And you start to look in his, to his teaching, then you discover it doesn't end there. He's way more than a teacher. 
He's the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God. And you start to look at him as a teacher and it's like the fascination will never end because he's so much more than just that. And it's cool because John says it was at the 10th hour when we got to his house. You know, it's like, this is 60 years later for John. 60 years later, he's writing this gospel and he can tell you the exact time he arrived at Jesus' house. Do you remember where you were when you met Jesus? Yeah, you don't forget that. You know, maybe it was when you were little or whatever. For me, it was when I was little, but I, but I remember when I was 17 and it was really mine and I was in the back row of a church and I bowed my head on a Sunday night and I met Jesus. You don't forget when you meet Jesus. John's like, it was four o'clock. I remember the time. And one of the true marks that you've met Jesus is that you'll have, a, you'll have the need to begin to tell someone else, to, to, to share with someone else. A- Andrew had this advantage that his brother Simon Peter was also a seeker. He was looking. He was already looking. And so Andrew went immediately to Simon Peter and, and he said, we found the Messiah. And you know, that's the greatest thing that you could ever do for someone is to bring them to Jesus. You can do all sorts of things that they'd be grateful for. You know, you can help them with this, help them with their yard, bring them a meal, do this for them, do that for them. They'll be grateful. But you bring them to Jesus and it'll change their lives, man. And they'll be grateful forever. Verse 41 says this about Andrew. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus Jesus looked at him. That's kind of strange. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Kepha, which means Peter. Jesus looks him over. I just kind of love that. How would you like that, eh? It's like, wow, this is awkward. Jesus is looking him over. And you know the thing about Jesus is that he's not looking at the outside of the man, is he? He's looking on the inside. I, I, I just imagine... That as Jesus looked Peter over, Peter could feel the searching work of the Spirit, discerning who he was, discerning his, his heart. And Jesus looked at him and said, Oh, you really are Simon. Simon. That name, that name comes from the Hebrew word, word, root word Shema. Remember Shema, O Israel? Hear, O Israel. The name means a hearer, a listener. Simeon, who we first see in the scripture, he's one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And when Jacob died, you know, Simeon was given that name because his mother said, the Lord has heard me. And so he was given this name, Simeon. But when Jacob died, he actually cursed his son, Simeon. Because, because Simeon, had become as an adult this unreliable person who didn't hear, who didn't listen, who didn't do what his father said. And so it's interesting that, that Jesus looks over Simon Peter and he can discern that the same heart is in Simon Peter, that he's a hearer, but he's not. He's kind of this unreliable man who's easily blown around. I, I imagine that when Jesus looked at Peter, he saw that Peter would crumble at the words of a little girl who would say, 
Well, you're one of his followers, aren't you? No, I'm not. Jesus saw it right there. That Peter, Simon Peter couldn't be relied on. That he would deny him at the questioning of a little girl. That, that Jesus saw that he was weak and that he would bend and be shaken. And so as Jesus had insight into his character, he also had insight into his future. Jesus said this, you might be unreliable now, but I'm going to make you a rock. <laughs> You've been called Simon, I will call you Peter, for you are a rock. Kepha. I'll give you a new name because you're going to follow me and you belong to me. And that name is going to reflect the nature and the character that I'm going to build into you as you follow me. I will call you Kepha, Peter. Simon Peter the Rock. Isn't that awesome? I got like deep character flaws, man. I know you do too. And what I love about Jesus is this, is that my flaws are not a problem for Jesus. And your flaws, the parts of your character that you hate and you go, I wish I could change it. I want to tell you this. It's not a problem for Jesus. You just follow him. You follow him. He'll take your unreliable nature, if that's what it is, and he'll make you a rock. He'll, he'll take those, he changes us. He molds us into his image that we can become a rock. And yet he's still Peter, you know. Matt can be taken from weakness to strength. And I'm still, he didn't change my personality, but he changed my character. He's changing yours. And I just think this, as you read this, it's like imagine if Andrew didn't go and tell Peter about Jesus. What a loss for the kingdom if Andrew didn't go and tell Peter. Eliminate Andrew. And we don't have the first man who preached the first ever message at Pentecost. We don't have the books of 1 Peter and 2 Peter. We don't have the gospel of Mark. We don't have so much if Andrew doesn't go and tell Peter about Jesus. But he met him, and he went and he sought out his brother. Verse 43, the next day, I'll try and wrap it up quick here. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So remember, Bethany's down by the Dead Sea. He decides, I'm going to go to Galilee. I'm going to make the journey north up the Jordan Valley. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Jesus finds Philip and Philip went looking for somebody else. Nathaniel, this is the best pattern for church growth right here. Right here. You find Jesus, you go tell somebody else about Jesus. You bring someone else to Jesus. Go and find someone. And I just want to tell you, bring people to church, man. Just take them by hand and say, come to church with me. Come hear about Jesus. Bring them. Take them. Say, look, I've been found. Come see what I've found. You know what's so cool about Philip is like, how much of the information does Philip have right? Not very much. We found Jesus of Nazareth, 
the son of Joseph. He doesn't know. He doesn't even know that Jesus isn't the son of Joseph. That's wrong. Not the son of Joseph. He's the son of God. Joseph is his stepfather. He got wrong information. So Jesus commands Philip, follow me. And, the, the, and you know, you just think about this, that, that the heart of Christian faith is not to live like Jesus, but to be with Jesus. You know, Jesus doesn't say, you know, you have to be like me. He just says, come and be with me. Come and be with me and I'll look after your nature. I'll look after your character. Come and be with me. Take my yoke upon you. Be linked to me. Let's pull together. Come along with me. So Philip goes. He finds Nathanael. Verse 46. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Love it. Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is, a, this is a crazy story. Like, I don't know. Like, this interaction that's going on with Nathaniel and Jesus, there's lots of stuff hidden in between the lines for us. It's really sweet. Nathaniel was, I think, the kind of man who thought about God. He thought about the Word of God. He loved the Old Testament. Sitting under the fig tree was kind of a cultural practice. You know, it's like we, we send our lazy boys with our Bible, maybe, or whatever it is. We meditate, we think on the things of God. This man, Nathaniel, was sitting under a fig tree and he was meditating on the things of God. We don't, we don't know, but I think this story gives us all the hints in the world that we need to know what Nathaniel was thinking about. Maybe he had been at the synagogue that morning and he had heard a teaching about Jacob's ladder from Genesis. Maybe he had had the scroll himself and read it. Maybe he was going over some of the things that he had memorized from the Bible. But whatever it was, Nathaniel was meditating on the story of Jacob and Jacob's ladder. And he obviously had a place where he loved to go and to get away from things and to spend time with the Lord, and under that fig tree, he was there, and he was meditating on, on the story of Jacob. And it's interesting when you think about it, because Jacob is like Peter. We see Jacob, he, his, he gets a character change, right? He's changed. Jacob was called Jacob, and his name is changed to? Israel, right. One who wrestles with God. He was the father of the people of God. He's the father of the nation of Israel, the, the the grandson of Abraham, but the father of the 12 tribes. And I, I guess maybe, you know, like you just, you think about it, if you start to just stop and imagine what's going on here, I think Nathaniel, like you and I, was probably amazed that God would take a man like Jacob and do what he did. Because we read about Jacob in the scripture. He's the, the heel catcher right from the beginning, right? He's like, he's the, the man of trickery. 
He's deceitful. He, he robs his brother of his birthright and he does this and he flees for his life and there's all sorts of things about Jacob. He's ripping off his father-in-law Laban, you know, he's like, there's all sorts of character flaws in the man Jacob. And it must have been bugging Nathaniel. He's like, man, the guy's a screwball. But God met Jacob. Jacob, who was a man who was full of deceit and had a broken character, Genesis 28 tells us that he was, he was in the wilderness and he was doing this. He had laid down to sleep the night and he put a rock under his head. You know why he put a rock under his head? Because he was fearing for his life. He didn't want to sleep very good. I have a nice soft pillow. You put a rock under your head because you do not want to sleep good because you're nervous about what's coming for you. He had a brother who wanted to kill him because he'd ripped him off. I'm going to rest, but I'm going to make sure I don't sleep too good because I need to know if someone's coming. He put a rock under his head. And as he was there, he, he had this dream, and in his dream, he saw a ladder that stretched from heaven to earth, and on that ladder were ascending and descending the angels of God. And Jacob, when he woke up, he said, whoa, this place is like, he called it Bethel. This is the house of God. I'm like close to heaven right here. And so Nathaniel's like thinking on these things. He's like sitting under the fig tree, thought to himself, you know, like Jacob's like a freaking deceiver. And he has this experience with God. And you know, I work to be a man not of deceit. I seek to tell the truth. I'm honest. Just ask me what I think about Nazareth. It's a dump. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. He's, not, he's, he's just a man who speaks the truth. He's not deceitful in character. Not, not perfect, but not a Jacob. It won't blow any smoke. Ask me about Nazareth. I'll tell you. Jesus of Nazareth? What good could come out of Nazareth? Straight up. Philip didn't have the answer, so Philip said, come and see. That's a, good, that's, a good, that's a good answer for you. When you deal with people, you can't. Some people have better intellectual arguments than you might have at different times, or they can, and you're not sure. Just say, come and see. Well, just come with me. Come to church. You know, come to Wednesday night. Come, come to men's thing. Come to ladies' body. Just come. Just come. Just come and see. I, I don't have all the answers, but come. So Nathaniel goes with him, and as they walk towards Jesus, Jesus said this about him. Now here's a true Jew. Now here's a true Israelite, one who's honest and open, one, a man in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel was stunned because Jesus knew his character. How could Jesus know his character when they had never spoken, never met, so he said to Jesus, how do you know me? How do you know me? And Jesus said to him, Nathaniel, I've been watching you. When you were all by yourself under that fig tree, and you thought you were all alone, I was there with you. You, you were sitting there by yourself, but you were not alone, because I was there with you. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. 
You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. In this little exchange, Nathaniel knew, Jesus knew everything that had been rolling around in his heart and mind. And Jesus said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Man, Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than this. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Samuel, you've been like stewing on Jacob's ladder. Let me just give you a little bit of insight into Jacob's ladder. I am the ladder. I am the bridge between heaven and earth. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the way between heaven and earth. Nathaniel, you love the story of Jacob because when, when Jacob had that dream, he felt so close to heaven. He saw that ladder and, and the angels of God ascending and descending and he said, this place has to be Bethel, the house of God. Nathaniel, I'm the ladder. I'm Jacob's ladder. I'm the way to heaven and you will have the very same experience as Jacob did by being with me. I'll come to the tabernacle with you. I'm gonna make the house of God in you. You're gonna experience things that you never could have dreamed or imagined. Not a ladder, but a person, Jesus. It's probably Nathaniel's favorite Bible story. And he found in reality that it was about Jesus, that the reality of that story was found in Jesus. Man, so much to take for this text. But I just want to leave you with this challenge. Just invite people. Come and see. Come and see. I found the one I was looking for. Come and see. You don't have to have all the right answers. Just lead them towards Jesus. He'll know all the thoughts they were thinking, where they were sitting, what they were stewing on. You know that in your own life. How Jesus just began to put it all together and you thought, oh, that's why here. That's why here. That's what he was doing here. I was never alone. He was always there with me. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world Make straight the path, church. He's coming again. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Would you guys stand? Jesus. So thankful, Lord. We're thankful, God, for the invitation to come and follow you. And Jesus, we do make the mistake trying to fill our lives with other things, Lord, when you, you, you want to fill us with your spirit. And so, Lord, we just thank you for the reminder of your word this morning that you've not come just to empty of us of sin, but to fill us with your spirit. Lord, would you come now and baptize us in the spirit, Lord? Baptize us in the Holy Spirit, Lord. 
Fill us, Lord. Lord, show us that, that, that you are greater than anything. Lord, walking with you is better than anything this earth, this world has to offer. Lord, we desire to be those who follow you. We desire, Lord, to be those who say to others, come and see. And God, for that, we need your spirit to fill our lives. Lord, this morning, maybe there's sin that we're wrestling with, things that we've been wrestling with. Lord, we just bring that to you right now. We ask you, Jesus, that you would forgive us. We thank you, Jesus, that your blood has made the way, Lord. You shed your blood to take away the sins of the world. My sins, Lord to take away the things that we can't yet, we can't deal with as individuals. Lord, would you come and just take it away? Would you forgive us, Lord? Would you bring your peace again? And God, would you do this? Would you fill us with your spirit? Fill us, Lord, with the Holy Spirit that we'd walk with you. I thank you, Jesus, that that's, that's what this is about, that we'd be with you. You picked these disciples, so that they would be with you. Lord, as we invite you into our lives, we just, we, we want to do life with you. We want to walk with you. In our homes, Lord, in our marriages, in everything, Lord, we want to walk with you. Would you be glorified? Like John, Lord, we pray this morning that uh, you'd become more and we'd become less. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.